Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me again to the book of Exodus, the 20th chapter as we are continuing our study of the Ten Commandments and the practical applications that we can learn from this aspect of the Mosaic Law for life today that we would live for the glory of God. Robert Baker Barker made a mistake. It seemed like a small, insignificant error. He left out a word. It was one word in a very large project. In fact, it was, it was one word out of 7, 773,692 words. One word. It was a small word, three letters. Three letters out of over 3,566,000 letters. I mean, nobody's perfect. And it wasn't like there hadn't been mistakes before. It wasn't the first misprint that ever happened. In fact, when this project had been first printed 20 years earlier, there were a number of mistakes and misprints that were made. These things happen. It was before computers, when typesetting letters had to be done by hand, and it was an honest mistake. But this small error had large implications and changed the meaning significantly. Robert left out the third word of the 14th verse of the 20th chapter of Exodus. The passage I've had you turn to. And in 1631, when Robert Barker left out that word, he left out the word not from the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He left it out. This became known, the 1631 edition became known as the Wicked Bible. Robert Barker and Martin Lucas, the printers, were summoned by the king before the court. They received a significant fine, lost their printing license, and it was ordered that all copies of this Bible be destroyed. There are probably less than two dozen in existence today. It was known as the Wicked Bible, the Adulterous Bible, or the Sinner's Bible. But you know, I wonder if today it might be known as the Modern American Culture Bible. Last week we looked at the Sixth Commandment, dealing with thou shalt not kill and really that has pretty much universal acceptance within our culture that killing people is a bad thing but when we come to this commandment you shall not commit adultery our culture really would push back against that what I want us to see this morning though is this commandment is dealing with honoring marriage the focus is protecting marriage and the Lord's concern to honor and protect marriage. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 14 of Exodus 20 with me. This brief verse, you shall not commit adultery. 
Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that we would have clarity in thinking that goes against the grain of our culture. Lord, that we would understand the courage that is needed to live purely in a wicked world. And that we would understand the compassion and cleansing that there is in Jesus Christ for when we fail and when we've fallen. So we pray that you would help us apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The command is clear. And our Lord intensifies it when we go to Matthew chapter 5. And what we see in this passage is that God's holiness should cause you to strive for purity in your personal life and in your relations to others. As I said, this really goes against the grain of our American culture. But to understand the importance of the seventh commandment, we need to realize that we're grasping God's purpose for marriage. That is the reason for this command. What I want us to first of all see is that purity is intended to protect what is precious, not deny what is pleasurable. As I mentioned last week, when we considered the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, it really was a statement protecting life. This commandment is protecting marriage. And in the confusion of our culture, there's a failure to understand that physical intimacy was part of God's plan to protect and promote marriage. We live in a world, we live in a culture where people are looking for love, but they settle for sex and fail to understand that intimacy is part of God's plan in a much bigger perspective. The first thing I want us to see, though, is that God's design protects the sacredness of marriage. You know, in our vulgar culture, the entertainment industry, the music industry depicts sex outside of marriage as what's exciting and exhilarating and marital intimacy as boring. That's not the case at all. Now, there is, an, as Proverbs 9 speaks of, an intoxication of illicit relationships. It says in Proverbs 9.17 that the immoral woman says stolen water is sweet. But verse 18 of that section says her guests are in the depths of hell. That there is pleasure in sin for a season, but there are consequences. But the physical relationship is given by God to deepen and maintain the unifying of two individuals into one as one flesh and bring the security of a covenant relationship, that covenant commitment. God is pro-sex. I decided not to put that on an overhead because I was afraid somebody would take a screenshot, post it on social media without context, and I want to be known as that church. But if you question that, read Song of Solomon. Realize that this was God's idea. And and it really is that intimacy is God's gift to newlyweds in marriage. And, And I say this because we do a disservice to our children and young people if we separate the discussion of the physical intimacy from marriage. Because our world does that for them. And we have to help them see God's plan. The second thing is to realize God's design promotes closeness in marriage. It is never about conquest, but about commitment, compassion, and closeness. Now, unfortunately, through history, there have been those in religious circles that have viewed marital intimacy as some form of necessary evil. In the Middle Ages, Catholic priests counseled married couples to abstain from sex altogether. 
And that's really a violation of 1 Corinthians 7, 5. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church prohibited sex on certain holy days. And that got to the point where at the time of Martin Luther, they had a list of 183 days a year that you had to refrain. You know, praise the Lord for the Reformation. (laughs) Because not only was it needed for theological reform, it restored sexual sanity concerning marital intimacy. But the marital intimacy is powerful. God has given it for procreation, but also for pleasure. And so to state this command positively, it requires husband and wives to nurture their love for one another emotionally, spiritually, as well as physically. And recognizing that that what God is seeking to do is protect the precious, not deny the pleasurable. But the second thing I want us to understand is intimacy within the covenant of biblical marriage promotes that marital oneness. This was God's idea. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 make this clear. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There are a number of things that this passage gives us, and and I'm just going to bullet point them again so that we have it clear in our thinking, But, but marriage is heterosexual. It's a man and woman. A man shall be joined to his wife. That, that God created marriage. He gets to define the terms. There is no such thing biblically as same-sex marriage. As Al Mohler said, it's really a same-sex mirage. It's an illusion based on distortion. And it's people trying to find love and settling without realizing what God's plan is. Marriage is to be complementary. Men and women are equal in their humanity, but that equality is expressed differently. There's unity without uniformity. It's monogamous. It's one man and one woman. The singular words that are used in verse 24 are significant. I mean, God is telling them and blessing them that in His blessing they will fill the earth. But it's one man and one woman. God's design, the design of marriage is that it would be permanent. One man and one woman for one lifetime. Unfortunately, sin creates problems, and we know that and see that, but we we go back to what God's ideal is. It's to be intimate. You know, human sexuality is is superior to animal sexuality. In fact, the first mention of the distinction of the sexes in Scripture is in Genesis 1.27 when it says, Male and female created he them in the image of God. And it's repeated in chapter 5, verse 2. And so understood biblically, intimacy is more than just physical. It's, it's the oneness of the one flesh union, but it's the intertwining of spirits, of lives, of, of the souls coming together. And it's to be faithful. The Bible takes a high view of marriage fidelity. It's a sacred relationship, a covenant that is not to be broken. But I want us to understand that adultery is the breaking of that sacred bond of marriage by sexual infidelity. And that's the first thing I want us to see under this point, that it's that breaking of, of the bond. In the narrowest sense, this commandment is, is speaking of adultery as the breaking of that bond and, and that it is the greatest sin, sexual sin, because it violates that trust between a husband and wife. It's the breaking of the covenant that was made publicly before witnesses and before God. 
that adultery does more damage than other forms of sexual sin, such as having sex before marriage. Now, the Bible speaks of purity, but there's a, there's a special concern here. Now, understand this command is going to have broader implications. Psalm 119, 96 says, Your commandments is exceedingly broad. So the, prohibit, the prohibition against adultery, Jesus is going to go to the heart issue, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So in, in a wider sense, it speaks of, of any sexual intimacy outside the setting and bonds which God has designed. Secondly, God prohibits all forms of sexual immorality outside the one-man, one-woman marital relationship. In the 17th century, the preacher Matthew Henry said, this commandment forbids all forms of fleshly lusts which produce those acts and war against the soul and excite those fleshly lusts as looking in order to lust, which Christ tells us is forbidden in this commandment in Matthew 5, 28. To go to 1 Corinthians where Paul is dealing with a church that had some pretty significant marital problems, he says, do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who join, is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin a man does outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is a very strong statement to the church at, at Corinth, cautioning them against the culture in which they lived, which was very much like the culture in which we live. That the acts of immorality are a kind of spiritual desecration. In fact, the prohibition against immorality in the Old Testament was second only to the commandments against idolatry because of that spiritual aspect. That for a Christian, our, our body parts belong to Jesus. So how can we involve His members in immorality? Or as 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Abstain from sexual immorality. You know, sometimes single couples say, ask the question, well, how far can I go? That's the wrong question. The question is, how do I protect my purity and the joy of the person that I claim to love? But the third thing I want us to see in this passage is purity shelters your physical relationships and your spiritual life. You know, when people try to, sexu to isolate sexuality and the pleasures of sex, they always end up harming themselves and others. You know, have, have any of you ever used super glue? You know, that is an amazing substance. It has tremendous bonding properties. And, and you put th two things together and hold them just for a short time, and, and, and they, they are stuck. But if you get it in a wrong place, it makes a real mess. If you get it on your fingers, it is not fun getting them unstuck. You know, sex is like super glue. It's given by God to bond two people together. And in the right place, it strengthens a relationship. In the wrong place, it makes a mess. 
And when the wrong things get joined together, the separation tears at the soul. And understanding the importance of this, because first of all, sin devalues God's gift of intimacy. We, we live in a culture, we live in a day where we, where we hear a lot of discussion about safe sex. Sexual intimacy was never supposed to be dangerous. That God's plan is that it's only dangerous outside of the bounds that he sets. And it's interesting because Proverbs has an awful lot to say about this. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 give a number of, of cautions, of warnings, of descriptions, and also metaphors that are very helpful. There are some helpful analogies. So in Proverbs 5, verses really 15 through 19, but I've only given you a couple of the verses, drink water from your own cistern, the running water from your own well. Should your fountain be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. It's a picture of water. You know, have you ever had a spring where you are, you've been really thirsty? Now, I know if you go hiking in the mountains around here, you're not going to find springs of water. But if you've ever been in that place and that cool water is refreshing, but the contrast then is the water running in the street. And if you've been in places where you see that, where they kind of dump the sewer into the street in some third world countries, that's where you find disease and dirt. So when our culture speaks about safe sex, they're, they're going to the wrong place because it's safe within God's boundaries. Outside of marriage, it's like the sewer running in the street. It's dirty and can carry disease. But that was not God's plan. Proverbs 6 verse 27 says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can he walk on coals and his feet not be seared? So he who goes in to his neighbor's wife who touches her shall not be innocent. The metaphor here is of fire. You know, fire in marriage is like that fire in the fireplace. It's warm, it's cozy, it's powerful. But you get it outside the fireplace into the house, and it's destructive. Mar marriages are destroyed. Homes are destroyed and devastated by immorality. These are the pictures that we find. There's another one in Proverbs 7. Verse 22 says, immediately he goes after her. It's the, the simple man who's following the, the strange woman that's being described there. He goes after her as an ox goes to slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow strikes his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know that it would cost his life. The contrast here is between human conduct with rational decisions and animal instincts. The young man being turned into a beast going to slaughter. Lacking understanding is what it says in verse 7. Or the bird that's falling into the trap and snare. See, Proverbs gives us some very graphic pictures of God's plan and understanding this. And sometimes we even hear they're, act, they're acting like an animal. Well, that's not God's plan. And recognizing this. But understand as well that adultery taints one's character. This is a lasting thing, that it's, it's a sin against one's own body, that, that sexual sin is never just about sex. Regardless of what our culture tries to talk about, friends with benefits or however they want to label it, it's never the case because God doesn't allow it that way. It's always connected to the rest of life. For Israel, 
Adultery was a serious offense in the covenant community. It was actually punishable by death. And it was tied to their relationship with God. Adultery is a, a compounding sin. It's not only a sin against God, but it's a sin against one's spouse. It's a sin against one's partner and then against one's partner's spouse and against one's own body, as we read in 1 Corinthians 6.18. I mean, it really is a train wreck of tragedy. And one of the most difficult elements of dealing with somebody who's fallen into adultery is counseling the children. To have them in my office weeping because they're the collateral damage. They're struggling how to understand how one parent whom they love and trusted has caused such damage and hurt to the other parent that they love and trust. And quite honestly, I don't have good answers for them. Proverbs 6.32 says, Whoever commits adultery with a woman is lacking in understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. There is forgiveness. There can be that forgiveness, but there's a lasting taint. Now, we're all familiar with David and his stumble, his fall into sin. And, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 15, it's talking about God's blessing on David's descendants even when they are disobedient, that God still blesses them because of David. And it's about 60 years after David has died. And verse 5 of 1 Kings 15 says this, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Almost 60 years later, as God is communicating His Word, He says He did right in everything except this. What was the situation with Uriah the Hittite? Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. David committed adultery and then tried to cover it by having Uriah murdered. You know, even within our culture, with the almost moral Philistines of our day, Adulterers are viewed as with a little less respect and a little less trustworthy. We had a president a while back, and, and they, they kind of made a thing about that, and, and it really didn't hurt his political career, but there's still a taint that that's not somebody you really trust. Now, we understand the seriousness of sin and the consequences. It's like, okay, now what? Well, we need to maintain our purity and that requires an intentional commitment to holiness. And that's the fourth thing I want us to see in this passage. That, that we would strive, that there would be an intentional commitment, that I'm, I'm trying to get us to think counterculturally, to think biblically in a world that exalts wickedness. In 1 P Peter 1.15 it says, But as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy as I am holy. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, two verses earlier, in verse 13, it says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully in the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's kind of like roll up the sleeves of your mind. For, for those with long flowing robes, it would say, get the loose ends out of the way so, you can, so that you can get involved. And the first thing we need to do is guard our minds. 
to change your lifestyle, you have to change your thinking. And this is where Jesus then takes this command and and goes to the heart issues. It says, you have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's the command we're looking at. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, we, have a, we tend to have a higher tolerance for our inward sins than our outward sins. And definitely for our inward sins versus somebody else's outward sins. But if we, we think that that's minor, it's a flaw in our thinking. Because unless we are concerned about having a pure heart, then we're going to set ourselves up for failure. If you lose the battle in your mind, eventually you'll lose the battle in your body. Now, now please don't understand me and, and, and what Jesus is saying here. There are degrees of sin. The act is worse than the thought. Several years ago, I had somebody come to me and say, well, you know, the Bible says that if you, if you look to lust, then you've committed adultery, so I might as well just commit adultery. I said, sure, and if you hate somebody in your heart, it's like murder, so you might as well just kill them. He said, I get your point. I said, yeah, there's a, there are different consequences. We have to guard our hearts, but the consequences are different. And, and Jesus says this. In fact, there are degrees of sin. In John 19, 11, Jesus told Pilate that the one who delivered him, Jesus, to Pilate, had the greater sin. All sin is, is wrong. It falls short of the glory of God, but the consequences are different. But the idea that lustful fantasy is innocent is flawed thinking. Don't buy that lie. When a person looks at someone else as an object to satisfy their desires, that is lust. And it's compounded when it leads to that self-gratification, which is really an act of self-worship. Because your body is not your own. And when when sex becomes about self-gratification, we've moved from a gift to an idol. And that's one of the many problems with the pornography industry. And it's a problem for both men and women today. It's a significant problem. Often for men, it's the visual. For women, it's the relational. But the danger is we become calloused in our thinking. And we lose moral discernment. This is the danger, and Romans 1 speaks of this. But I think we get that, that if you're viewing pornography or in an illicit activity on Saturday, do you really think you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth on Sunday? It's going to hurt our worship. And so we have to guard our minds. Secondly, we have to go to war. We have to be willing to do battle. And this is what Jesus says as the the passage goes on, that godly men are always, have always understood that preserving sexual purity means we have to be careful about what we look at. And it says in 2 Peter 2.14, they have eyes that are full of adultery and cannot cease from sin. And so Jesus confronts that and says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you for one member, one of your members to perish than your whole body should be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than that your whole body should be cast into hell. Now, obviously, the problem is not the physical members. It's a heart issue. But Jesus is saying, look, you need to remove the things that make it easy to sin. Job had a remedy in Job 31.1 when he said, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why should I look intently, lustfully on a young woman? But we need to remove the things that make it easy. Now, 
What, what's your entertainment viewing like? What are your movie choices? Do you justify a little nudity? What about your music choices? Is it songs that promote immorality? You know, it might mean getting rid of your smartphone if that's what it takes. You know, I know that will come as a shock to some of our young people, but some of us grew up without phones in our pockets or in our cars. Our phones were hooked to a wall by a cord. You know, you had no idea who was calling you until you answered it. And, and we lived. You know, if that's what it takes to protect you from this world, then that's not too big a step. Your spiritual survival is more important than your social connections. To get away from te- temptation and say, well, you know, if I had to do that, I'd have to quit my job. Well, if that's the case, quit. It would be less drastic than twisting out your eye. And it's better to go to heaven poor than go to hell rich. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, I'm not saying that a person who struggles with lust is unsaved, but it is a spiritual battle. Because 1 Peter 2.11 says that fleshly lust war against our soul. It's a battle to trust Christ. It's a battle to believe that purity is better than what the world has to offer. So we need to go to war. third thing is you need to guard your relationships. And this is at many levels, but in Romans 13, 14, it says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and do not make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust of it. Or as 1 Peter 2 says, Beloved, I, I beg you as sojourners, pilgrims, people who are living for another place and another time and just passing through, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against your soul. If you're married, it begins by protecting your marriage. That's where it has to begin. You know, most adulterous relationships do not begin with sex. They begin with an inappropriate closeness. Don't flirt with somebody who's not your spouse. Ladies, don't seek emotional support from somebody who's not your husband. We have to be very careful in this culture. Say, well, that seems countercultural. Yeah, purity is. If you're single, protect your integrity and your purity of your relationships. How do I do that? Well, the fourth thing is live for others. Focus on self-sacrifice rather than selfishness. That we would understand that we need to have that self-sacrifice. I think that's the next slide. That we would guard those in our aggressiveness here. That we would be focused on our love for Jesus Christ. Do you put an emphasis on other people? Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See, if, if I'm investing in the lives of other, I'm, others, I'm not going to do anything to hurt them. You know, singles, love does not use people. If someone pushes you for physical involvement, they're focused on self-satisfaction, not on your joy. As, as husbands and wives, we have to be focused on the, the concern and care for our spouse to nurture that love and the emotion of it and the spiritual support for one another. You know, if I love somebody, I'm not going to poison their coffee. I'm not going to punch them in the face. And I'm not going to pressure them for sex. People are looking for love. They settle for sex. It's that super glue that strengthens a marriage, but it sure causes a lot of, of problems when it gets in the wrong place. Guys, grow in godliness. 
Make it a commitment that, that you will be a godly person. Go back to what we read this morning in 1 Timothy of the characteristics that are needed for church leadership. Say, I want to strive to see those in my life. Don't live for yourself. And be willing to commit to marriage. It's a big step. Yeah, it's a step of faith. If God has given you the gift of singleness, it's for serving Him, not for playing video games. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about this. So look for opportunities to serve others. You know, my wife and I actually met at a Christian camp in Michigan where both of us were there to serve. Neither of us were spouse hunting. And yet, that's where we met. And God works as we're willing to serve Him, trust Him, that we're aggressive in our love for the Lord, we're pursuing that, that we're active in, in worship and serving God's people. Understand, Satan wants to isolate you. He wants you alone. He doesn't want us to come together. We need accountability. That's why I stress our small groups. Because we get involved and we get accountable and when we're struggling, somebody, hey, how's it going? We need to be sensitive to spiritual things and not become complacent. Because not only must we abstain from sexual adultery, we need to abstain from spiritual adultery. And understand, if you've messed up, confess and forsake your sin. Live in the awareness of God's presence. Be aware that like Joseph in, in Egypt, in Genesis 39, he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I mean, he had a, he had a perspective on immorality that was countercultural to Egypt. In fact, it probably would have helped his advancement. It would have at least kept him out of prison for a short time if he had gone along with the temptation but he would have lost the blessing of God. And he saw sin as God sees it. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He had God's perspective. Proverbs 5.21, bulletin says 6. I had the wrong reference there. It's 5.21. says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. That's in the context of what we've already considered of the metaphors for the intimacy and God sees. Or as it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity should be dear to us because the pure in heart are the ones that will see God. We have to be careful that we don't think of sin as a little mistake. It was only three letters. One word out of millions of letters and hundreds of thousands of words, but it changed the meaning. Little sins can have huge problems and lifelong ramifications. And if we lose the battle in our mind, eventually we'll lose the battle in our body. So we have to go to battle. We have to remember the presence of the Lord. But I would say then as well, rejoice in the Lord's forgiveness. So, you know, most of the sermon's been warning us to be sensitive, to realize there's consequences. Like, you know, great, what if you mess up? God is a God of mercy. As we talked about in our men's breakfast yesterday, I mentioned that if God had really wanted to just destroy Adam and Eve, he didn't have to go looking for them. God is a God of mercy. I've sought to impress upon us that we cannot be godly and lustful. We have to think differently than our culture. But due to the corrupt
current of our culture, I would re be remiss if we didn't have hope and help. I've already mentioned David's sin, but David found forgiveness. In, in Psalm 51, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And it's his plea after his fall. In Psalm 32, another psalm that speaks of forgiveness. He, he speaks of blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, who's been made whole. And both of those are, are the rejoicing that comes in seeking and receiving God's forgiveness and cleansing. We looked at a, the very strong verses in 1 Corinthians 6, but let, let's go back there because there's also the hope. There's the great warning in verse 9. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, drunkards, revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says, And such were some of you. That was the church at Corinth. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. There is great hope because Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Those who have messed up morally. We see it in John chapter 4. As Jesus rescues the woman at the well, he calls her and, and says, go, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, you've spoken well. You've had a number of husbands, and the man you're living with isn't your husband. And then she receives forgiveness. He forgave her. In chapter 8 of John, we find Jesus forgiving the woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. She's caught in the very act. They bring her to Jesus. They, they're, they're not looking for justice. They're looking to, con, to trap him. It's like, where was the guy? They only bring her, and they want, what, should we stone her? And, and you, if you're familiar with the story there in John 8, he says, the one among you who is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And they get convicted, and they leave. And then he turns to her and says, go and sin no more. He didn't just say, go and live like you were. There's forgiveness. There's hope. There's restoration. There is no sin that you have committed that is beyond the reach of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. So while this command is one that strengthens and as we guard our, our, our purity, protects marriage, we also need to understand if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that we would strive to, to have that desire, but not just hear the word, we must apply it. I have a number of friends who are out of the ministry today because of their moral failures. We sat in the same chapels. We sat in the same Bible classes. We have to guard our hearts. Hebrews 4.2 says we, we must be on guard because the gospel that was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. Do you have a faith in God that is stronger than the desires of the flesh? It really is a battle of faith versus lust. You know, sometimes people say, well, I'm not hurting anybody. Please understand, sin isn't wrong simply because somebody gets hurt. Sin is wrong because God is not glorified. 
It's not because someone is injured. It's because God is dishonored. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's why Jesus came. He came to this world to save sinners. And when you read, and it's interesting, especially in Luke, because Luke highlights the, the outcasts, the social outcasts and the moral outcasts. The woman caught in adultery. The, the woman who has a very poor past, and she's washing Jesus' feet with her hair. And the others are thinking, if he knew what she did, he wouldn't let her, him, her touch him. And it's a misplaced shame. He forgives her because she comes in repentance. Looks, there's hope for sinners. That's why Christ died, to save us from our sin. And so I trust that as we consider this, we will think biblically, not culturally. Our culture is anti-purity. But blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Follow holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Is your faith such that I want to see God more than I want to partake in the pleasures of sin for a short time? Not only does God give forgiveness, He gives the strength, He gives the cleansing, and He gives us the power to overcome. Because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's bow for prayer.